Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. We will be continuing our study in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, the, the final uh, public discourse of, of Jesus' ministry before his betrayal and crucifixion. This morning our focus will be on verses 25 through 28. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 881. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. This is the very Word of God. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the reading of His Word here this morning. Father God, we come before you humbly this morning, asking that your Holy Spirit might open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to receive your word, to understand it, to comprehend it, to, to apply it, and to walk in its light. Father God, we know that it is by your word that we have been born again, and it is by your word that we will grow up in our salvation. And so we ask, according to your promise, that you would not allow your word to return void, but that you would work through it to accomplish your purpose, even here this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in these verses for some time now, and if you've been with us the last several weeks, you will remember that to this point in the discourse, Jesus' focus has, has been on the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the then impending event that would take place in A.D. 70, less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. However, we saw last Sunday, at the end of verse 24, Jesus shifts his focus. And in verses 20 through 24, it's clear that Jesus is talking about the, the destruction of Jerusalem. However, at the end of verse 24, he mentions the end of Jerusalem's desolation. Look again at what Jesus says. He says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so, in verse 24, Jesus begins by talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction that would come within a generation, the, the destruction that would take place in A.D. 70. But at the end, in the last phrase of verse 24, he, he shifts his focus to a, a time in the future when the desolation of Jerusalem would be over, when it would come to an end, to a day that even today is yet still future. And it is about this yet future day that Jesus is talking in verses 25 through 28. It's, it's about that still future day that Jesus is talking when he says there will be sign and sun and moon and stars. 
So the first thing that we see this morning is that these verses before us, verses 25 through 28, are about a day that is still in our future. A day that is, that is still in not only their future, but, but our future today. A day that has not yet come to pass. And notice what Jesus says about this yet future day. He says, on that day there will be signs and sun and moon and stars. He says, on that day there will be on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. He says, on that day there will be people fainting with fear and foreboding at what is coming on the world. Even the very powers of heaven will be shaken. And then, he says, following all of this, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. These are the words that I want us to try to understand this morning. And we're going to try to understand three things about them. We're going to first try to understand their, their nature. Then we're going to try to understand their meaning. And finally, we're going to ask about their significance. So let's begin with the nature of Jesus' words. I don't know about you, but when I hear talk about signs and the sun and the moon and the stars, or when I hear about uh, the nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves and the very powers of heaven being shaken, there is in me a little bit of that modern man who sort of rolls his eyes and, and wonders about such things. It's hard for me to suppress the, the, the skepticism that just so easily wells up in modern readers. After all, I don't read horoscopes. I laugh at those who do. I, I pity those who are superstitious, those who need to knock on wood or, or carry around their rabbit's foot. I know better. I'm an educated man. I, I don't believe in such silly things. And so to hear of signs and stars, there's a per part of me that, that is cynical. And I suspect that there are probably at least a few here this morning who, who feel that same cynicism well up. And so the very first thing that I want to do this morning, the very first thing that I want to, to say to you is this. You must resist. In fact, I need to say it stronger than that. You must reject. You must reject the, the cynicism of modern man. Do not be so wise in your own eyes that you make yourself a fool. I'm not saying that you have to read everything Jesus says here literally. We'll get to that in just a moment. Jesus may very well be using figurative or, or symbolic language. But you need to hear me say that whether his language is figurative or whether his language is literal, his words are true. Jesus is describing historical events. Events that will take place in space and time. Events that will accompany his historic bodily return. He is describing a day that will be every bit as real, every bit as historical, every bit as bodily as the day that Rome marched on Jerusalem to destroy it. 
That was a historical event. That was a day in history. And the day that Jesus is describing here, while it is still future, it is historical. It is bodily. These words are true. Whatever we conclude about the precise meaning of Jesus' words, even whether we end up agreeing at the end of the day or not, about whether they're figurative or or literal, we must agree about this. His words are true. This is a description of a day that will come in space and time. We have to begin there because if we don't begin there, then nothing else we say is going to really matter. We have to agree that what Jesus is describing is history. It is true. It is is what will take place. But that said, we must also agree and we must also see that, that the nature of Jesus' words is debatable. And generally speaking, his words can be read in one of two ways. His words may be read, as I've said, literally, or his words may be read figuratively. And, if, and you probably fall into one of two camps. Either you tend to read the words literally, or you tend to read the words figuratively. And I want to address both groups this morning. If you are in the camp that tends to read the words literally, to think, tends to think that these are things that are actually going to happen as Jesus describes them, to you, I want to say this, it is possible to read the words figuratively without denying their truth or diminishing their authority. We sometimes think, if we, are, if we tend to read the words literally, that, that the people who read them figuratively are trying to, to get out from under them. They're, they're trying to deny their authority. They're, they're, they're trying to somehow uh, uh, evade the, the authority of God's word. And that simply is not true. To to read the words figuratively is not to deny their truth. It is not to undermine their authority. In fact, the Old Testament prophets often used exactly this kind of language to describe the various judgments of God against a a number of different languages. And it seems that that when the Old Testament prophets used this language, they used it figuratively. Let's look at a few examples. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Keep a finger or a bookmark in Luke. We're going to be coming back, but... We're going to jump around the Old Testament for just a a few minutes. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, this is page 576. Now, if you're using an ESV, you'll see that the heading that they've given to this chapter is, is the judgment of Babylon. A judgment of one of the historic enemies of, of God's people. This is speaking about the Medes' uh, judgment against Babylon. And they use exactly the same sort of language that we see in Jesus' description of that coming day. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its Light. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And again, verse 17, behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. 
And so this whole chapter is about the Medes coming upon Babylon, and yet it uses language that is very similar to the language that Jesus uses to describe the day of the Lord that is still future. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 14, verse 12, he uses the language of a star falling from heaven to describe the fall of Babylon's king. And so we see here that the prophets can use this sort of language figuratively. Even if you read Isaiah 14 differently, even if you think he's talking not about the king of Babylon, but about Satan, even then you have to admit it's a metaphor. It's not a literal star falling from heaven, but it is one who stood in authority, being thrown down from his throne. It's not only Isaiah who uses this sort of language. We see the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 32. Turn there with me, page 719, if you're using the Pew Bibles. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 32. And again, notice the heading. Headings are not inspired. These are put there by the publishers of the ESV, but they're still helpful to to let us know what's being spoken of. And here we have a lament over Pharaoh and Egypt. This is speaking about a judgment that that is going to come against Egypt. And and notice what we are told. In in verse 6, we're told that I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood. I think, I think we can agree that that is figurative. That's not going to be fulfilled literally. And so it follows that verses 7 and 8 might also be figurative. When he says, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. And all bright lights of heaven will, will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. So here again, we have a prophet of the Old Testament describing a judgment against a historical nation in terms very similar to what Jesus is using in Luke chapter 21. And of course, I could cite other examples in uh, the book of Joel or in the book of Jeremiah. There are are similar examples that we could look at. And we see such language even in the Psalms as they hear about uh, the earth being shaken and the waters roaring and the stars falling from the sky. And in each of these passages, it seems that the prophet is employing the language figuratively. And so, it stands to reason that Jesus, in the train of these Old Testament prophets could be using the language in the same way. He he could be speaking figuratively. He could be describing events that are going to take place in, in metaphor. And therefore, we must admit that when someone reads these words figuratively, they are not saying that the words are untrue. But rather, they are saying that there's something other than a clinical, scientific Description. They are a metaphor. They are a picture of what God intends to do. Those who tend to read the words literally, that's what I want you to hear. Those who are sitting around you, who, who read these words figuratively, are not denying the authority or the truth of Scripture. However, to those of you who tend to read the words figuratively, and that's the camp I tend to fall into, to you, I want to say this. It is possible that Jesus' words will be fulfilled literally. It is possible that that Jesus is describing events as they will unfold, for we have seen such literal fulfillments throughout biblical history. 
In the book of Exodus, we are told that God literally darkened the sky of Egypt for three days as a sign of his judgment. There was literal darkness in the land. A little later, we are told, we heard about it even this morning in our call to worship, that that God descended upon Mount Sinai in a literal way, a literal way that was... was, uh, brought great fear upon the people of Israel as fire and smoke shook the ground. In the book of Joshua, we are told that in a battle against the Amorites, God caused the sun to literally stop in the sky for about a whole day. Well, you think that's 12 hours? Well, you think that's 24 hours? I don't really care. The sun stopped, which it doesn't normally do. And God caused that to literally happen so that the armies of Israel could have a complete victory over their enemies. In the book of 1 Kings, we are told that fire literally fell from the sky upon Mount Carmel to consume Elijah's sacrifice. And such literal manifestations are not limited to the Old Testament. Think of what we see in the New Testament. Think of what we see even in the Gospels. The Magi are, are led to Jesus by a sign in the sky. We can debate what that sign was, whether it was a comet or whether it was a star or whether it was the the planets converging. I have no idea. But it was a literal sign that they saw in the sky. And of course, at Jesus' crucifixion, the sun will literally be darkened for three hours. So if you are here this morning and you are like me and you tend to to want to read these words figuratively, you need to know that it is possible that God will fulfill these words literally. He has done so before. He can do so again. But having said that, let me now say to both groups, it's not my concern to bump you one way or the other. It's not my concern what camp you end up in at the end of this day. My goal this morning is not to to convince you that I'm right and that you are wrong. In fact, I don't think it much matters whether you read the words literally or figuratively. I suspect that we will know the signs when we see them. If you are one who expects a literal fulfillment when when the words are fulfilled figuratively, I suspect you'll know what's going on. And if you are suspecting a figurative interpretation or a a figurative fulfillment, then when they are fulfilled, literally, you may be surprised, but I suspect you'll know what's going on. The point is not that we know exactly what is going to unfold. The point is that we know the nature of what God is going to do. And that's why I want to say to you that, that knowing the nature of Jesus' words, knowing whether they are figurative or literal is not really the point. We don't need to be 100% sure about the precise nature of Jesus' words to benefit from them. Because Jesus' point is not to satisfy our curiosity. He's not to giving us inside information so that we can be in the know. But rather, he is giving us a picture of the end. He is telling us what is going to happen so that we might live appropriately here and now. And so what is it that Jesus thinks we need to know about the end? What is it that he thinks we need to know about his his second coming for us to live faithfully as disciples here and now? Let's look at what Jesus tells us. First, he says that when he comes, he will come in a cloud with power and great glory. And again, that is language, that is 
echoing the Old Testament. It's language that we have seen throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, the language of, the, of coming in a cloud echoes the manifestation of God's presence. It echoes what we, we see when, when God shows up. As I said, when God led the people out of Egypt, he, he led them by a cloud, a cloud by day, fire by night. At Mount Sinai, his presence was manifest in a cloud upon the mountain. And we're told that when that cloud descended upon the tent of meeting, Moses knew it was time to go and have a conversation with God. And so did everybody else, because God had come to speak to his people. And of course, when the tabernacle was constructed, it was that cloud that filled the tabernacle and, and said to the people that God is now here dwelling in the midst of his people. The same cloud that would later fill the temple that Solomon constructed. And of course, we're told in Daniel chapter 7 that it was upon that cloud that one like a son of man came into the presence of the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. To come with a cloud is to come in power and glory. It is to show up as God. And this is telling us that when Jesus comes, he will come on full display. He will not come veiled. He will not come hidden. He will not come in obscurity. He will not come humbly as he came the first time. Jesus was born humbly. He was born in humiliation. He was born as a, as a child of a peasant girl in a, in a barn. He was laid in a manger. He grew up in obscurity as the son of a carpenter and a bywater of, of Jerusalem. Remember Nathaniel's question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We're told in Philippians that, that Jesus set aside his glory, not counting equality with God a thing to be grass. He humbled himself and became a servant. He came humbly that he might humbly stand with sinners. Not that he might be served, but that he might serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But when he comes again, he will come in glory. He will come in power. He will come in a cloud. He will come on full display. We will know who he is and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is God. And notice what else Jesus tells us. He says that prior to his coming, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars together with the roaring of the sea and the waves and even the very powers of heaven will be shaken. And again, we can debate exactly what that means. We can debate exactly how those words are to be understood. But it is undeniable that that language is the language of judgment. It's what we see throughout the Old Testament. We, we see the Old Testament prophets using this language of stars in the sky and of the, the roaring of the waves and of the shaking of the mountains. We, we see this as, as a picture of God's judgment against the nations. God's judgment against sinners. And so when Jesus uses this language, there is no doubt that Jesus is warning us that when he returns, he will return to judge the living and the dead. When he returns, he will return as judge. Do you remember Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth? We looked at it a long time ago, back in Luke chapter 4. 
Jesus is in Nazareth and he's given the scroll and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And the passage that he is given to read is a passage which speaks about God coming, about the Messiah coming to bring salvation to his people and judgment to his enemies. But when Jesus reads that passage, he doesn't read the part about judgment. He only reads the part about salvation because He's come to bring salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that he offers to whomsoever will believe salvation in Jesus Christ. But Jesus did not put off the the second part of Isaiah 61 forever, but rather he said, listen, that day is coming when I return. When I return will be the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. Believe today. Find God. Seek God while he may be found. For there is coming a day and my judgment will be poured out. Paul says there's a day of wrath coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed in full. And Jesus is telling us that when he comes again will be that day. And the third thing that we see is that when that judgment is poured out, it will be a time of terror for the nations. He tells us that that the world will, will... find itself in in great distress because of the perplexity of what is coming on the world. People will be fainting with fear and with foreboding. Because the wrath of God is coming against sinners. The desolation that came upon Jerusalem was but a shadow of that wrath. It was that wrath that that caused Jesus to, to sweat with blood on the night that he was Betrayed as he prayed in the garden, Lord, if there is any way, take this cup from me. What's the cup? What's the cup that he is talking about? It is the cup of God's wrath, the cup that he has been asked to drink for his people. And Jesus said, if there is any way, if there's any way to accomplish your purpose, if there's any way to save this people without me having to drink this cup, take it from me. But of course he said, but not my will, your will be done. And it is that cup of wrath that Jesus drunk upon the cross, drinking it in full, that we might instead know the cup of God's blessing. But for those who stand apart from Christ, for those who are not in Him by faith, that cup still remains. They remain objects of, of God's wrath. They remain under His judgment. They remain under the curse of the law. And this is what Jesus wants us to see. This is is what Jesus is, is showing us. He's saying, listen, the day of the Lord will be a day of terror for those who stand apart from Christ. But why does Jesus want us to see this? Why, why, does, why does Jesus show us such a, such a horrible picture? Is he simply taunting his, his enemies the way that, that NBA players taunt those whom they, they play against? Not at all. Jesus is not taunting. He is pleading. He is warning us that we might turn to him and be saved. In the Old Testament, God condemned the prophets who would speak peace, peace to his people when there was no peace. 
Speaking a word of, of peace, speaking a word of reconciliation, speaking a word of, of salvation was a bad thing if it wasn't true. And of course, we, we know this, do we not? This past week, Hannah and Sarah are watching a, a show. And in the, the TV show, there was a little boy who was very ill, and his, his mother feared that it was appendicitis. But after the doctor came and examined him, the doctor came out and said to the mother, you will be happy to know that your son does not have appendicitis. And of course, such a report would be gladly received if it were true. But if it's false, it's the worst kind of malpractice. It's the worst kind of malpractice to sell someone, you're, you're fine, you're not sick, you have nothing to worry about when they have a disease that threatens their very life. And so the young doctor's fear of surgery caused him to give a false report that nearly cost the boy his life. Well, Jesus isn't talking about our physical lives. He's talking about our eternal lives. And he simply will not give a false diagnosis. He simply will not speak peace when there is no peace. He wants us to see clearly the wrath of God that stands against sinners. The wrath of God that is being stored up and one day will be revealed in full. But I want you to hear that he is not saying that we are lost and without hope. For the last thing that Jesus says, he says to his disciples, look again. He says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, for your redemption is drawing nigh. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have received and rested upon him for your salvation, then this is your comfort. This promise belongs to you. On that day, Jesus will bring to completion the good work that he has begun. Think about what that means. It means, first of all, that your salvation is not yet complete. That probably doesn't come as a great surprise to you, but it's, it's encouraging to hear, is it not? This is not as good as it gets. Our salvation is not yet complete. We, we still live in this present evil age. Our, our bodies are, are still racked by the, the ravages of sin. We still deal with the, the passions of our former ignorance. They continue to wage war against our souls. And we live with other people who, who are in the same situation. And so our salvation is not yet complete. But there is coming a day when he will bring it to completion. There's coming a day when Jesus says, your redemption will be here in full. And so we look forward to a day when all that God has promised, when all that, that he has said he will do for his people will be Complete. This is our hope. This is our promise. He wants us to see the wrath that stands against sinners. Not that we might despair as those with no hope, but that we might flee to him. Think again of, of Psalm 2. We're told that the, the, the anger of the Son is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. His wrath is more than you can bear, but you don't have to bear it. For he has already borne it for you, that you might instead know the full cup of his blessing. 
But if you are here this morning and you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have never received and rested upon Him alone for your salvation, if you either aren't sure this is true or not sure you want to, to do this yet, then you need to hear Jesus say, this comfort is not yours. This past week we heard about the death of Stephen Hawking. And I don't know what you heard uh, about his death or you heard the people remembering him, but it seemed to be universally assumed that he was now in a better place. The one who denied the existence of God, unless he came to believe the gospel in his last hours, it is not true. It is not true. Those who die apart from Christ will drink the cup of God's wrath themselves. The only escape is to have Jesus drink it for you. The only escape is to stand before the Father in Him. If you are a Christian, if you received and rested upon Jesus Christ for your salvation, you have nothing to fear. You are heir of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But if you stand apart from him, then the day is coming when the mountains will crumble into the sea. And you will know for eternity nothing but the wrath of God against sinners. You need to know that, not so that you can despair, but so that you can turn. So that you can turn to Him, knowing that even today this comfort can be yours. That if you will believe today, then today you will be sealed. Today this inheritance can be yours. And really that's exactly what the significance of these words are. That's the, the final point. What is Jesus doing? He is telling us about that day. So that we might live today in faith. He's telling us about that day so that we might turn from our rebellion and receive the salvation that he is offering. The salvation that he is on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish. And so if you are here this morning and you have never known him, do not delay. For you do not know if even this day you will be called to account. I don't know when the, the day of Jesus' return will be. But I know that you have only one lifetime. One lifetime before you will be called to account. Do not delay and give up any hope of, of earning your way. Give up any hope of establishing your own righteousness with Him. You cannot do it. But you don't need to. For He has already done it. What you could not do for yourself, He has done for you. He has given His life as the ransom for yours. And if you will believe in Him, you will not perish, but will have eternal life. And because such hope is offered to us, whether Jesus' words are, are literal or are figurative, I don't know. But because such literal hope is offered to us, because these words are true, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the wonder of your gospel. And we pray now that you would give us the grace we need to believe it and to live it to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.